the Plugged In Podcast, a new project from the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. Joining me today to discuss the recent attack on the oil facility in Saudi Arabia is my colleague, Kenny Stein, the Director of Policy here at IER. Kenny, thanks for taking the time to talk today. Yeah, of course. So uh, before we talk about the attack last weekend, can you start by giving an overview of the role Saudi Arabia plays in global oil markets? Well, so Saudi Arabia is the, it's still the largest producer of oil. The United States has gotten up to the point where we're close to even with them uh, within the last year, year and a half. But the key with Saudi Arabia is that they have an enormous amount of excess capacity. They, they have several million barrels per day of excess capacity that they basically don't pump. They keep offline. So they're the swing producer. We, you know, if there's a if there's a you know civil war in Libya or there's sanctions on Iran, Saudi Arabia is the place that can quickly ramp up or ramp down oil production to try and stabilize prices. So they're the key member of OPEC. They're the ones with the excess capacity. They so they they're the ones who are manipulating global oil markets, basically. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we're we're recording this on Wednesday, the or sorry, today's Thursday, the nineteenth, right? Uh, and um, can you explain what happened then last weekend with the attack? Uh, what facilities were attacked, and uh, who do we believe was responsible? And just give an overview of the impact that, that that's had on oil markets. And uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, on Saturday, there was an aerial attack. It's unclear. There's been, it's been described as drones and missiles or some mix of the two. But it was an aerial attack, uh, explosive attack on uh, the main oil processing facility and stabilization facility in eastern Saudi Arabia. This is, this is the place where all the oil that's coming out of the wells in eastern Saudi Arabia is collected here and Things are separated into the lighter oil, the heavier oil, stabilized, and that's so that it can be put on tankers. So this is kind of the choke point for all of Saudi Arabia's oil production in this region. And therefore, it's the, it's the world's oil choke point, too. It's about the, this attack, uh, which was very sophisticated, targeted very specific areas of the processing facility that were hard to replace and were crucial for its function. And so it ended up, this attack ended up taking off uh, about 5% of the world's daily oil production capacity, which is about five, a little over 5 million barrels per day. So it was a significant sudden drop, you know, 5%, that's a lot. Uh, the question, it's still not exactly clear uh, where the attack came from or who actually initiated the attack. Ultimately, it, it, both the United States and Saudi Arabia are... 99%, 100% certain at this point that the weapons were ultimately originated in Iran. They were supplied by Iran. Now, the Houthi rebels in Yemen have claimed responsibility for this attack. Um, however, that doesn't mean that the weapons didn't come from Iran because the Houthis are an Iranian proxy in that civil war. However, the thing is, this, this particular attack is uh, extremely sophisticated, and it's uh, 
much more long distance than anything the Houthis have ever done before. They have been they have been launching strikes in, across the border into Saudi Arabia for years now. That's that's part of why Saudi Arabia invaded and got involved in the civil war in the first place. But their uh, their drone ability it's been a few drones at a time and a, a few hundred miles into Saudi Arabia. This is this facility is about 500 miles, more than 500 miles from Yemen. And there were approximately 17 different impact points that were all almost simultaneous. So this is extremely sophisticated, far beyond anything the Houthis have ever been able to do. And then there's also the interesting fact that the impact points from what look like missiles uh, all came from the north or northwest, which is obviously the direction of Iran or Iraq, not Yemen. So again, it's not completely clear that the attacks were launched from Iran, but it's pretty obvious that Iran is behind it. And presumably, it is in retaliation for what the Trump administration has been doing, cracking down on, turning the screws on sanctions. This is sort of Iran's next ratchet up. They've, you know, they started seizing tankers in the Persian Gulf. They've been harassing U.S. Navy ships. And now uh, they or their proxies have launched uh, a direct strike on a major, the major oil processing facility in the world. Yes, he said that this event, it knocked about 5% of the supply offline. Um, in terms of historical comparisons, how does that compare to uh, past oil um, supply shocks? Well, it's the largest, uh, I believe it's the largest uh, total number of barrels to go off. Now, obviously, as a percentage, it's smaller than um, some of the some of the earlier, like the, the, the oil embargo and uh, the first Gulf War of Iraq and Kuwait. Um, so the the percentage wise is is relatively lower, but as a total amount, it's the largest. This is the largest sudden disruption. And the, the other thing is this: this wasn't something that was, you know, a slow ramp down. This was a sudden shut off the pipes. It's not like in Libya where the rebels are advancing and they slowly turn off the pipes one by one type thing. Yeah, the response has been interesting because I, I guess in those past instances, uh, the response to supply shocks like this have been um, pretty interesting where we've seen things from like price controls to, you know, like drastically higher prices lead, that lead the price controls. Right. Um, in this case, it seems like oil or global markets have been able to handle the supply shock like pr pretty well. Um, right. That's what's that's actually the, uh, what I think is the most interesting part of this whole event is that it is it was a sudden huge cutoff but we you saw oil prices jump about 10 to 15 dollars a barrel but that's not really that much uh, for this for this volume of supply being taken off it not to, and not to mention the the instability of this passage is like the potential for an actual conventional war between Iran and Saudi Arabia like a, a serious escalation the oil markets just really haven't reacted that uh, drastically and Part of it has been that Saudi Arabia has been very aggressive in assuring markets that, oh, we're going to be able to get this back online really quickly. Now, whether that's, we'll see how true that is. But, but still, the, the, the change, the, the moral market change has been very, very limited uh, to, a, to a surprising degree. Yeah, what role, I guess, has the shifts in the oil market to um, more domestic production in the U.S. here? Um, what, what, what impact has that had on... Uh, the global market is being able to handle this, do you think? Right. Well, it's certainly, I, I think the biggest impact that the, the U.S. domestic production has been is the impact that this pro has had on the United States itself, which is virtually nil. I mean, you think about, if you think about 10 or 15 years ago, 
if this sudden cutoff had happened when we were importing a third of 40 33%, 40% of the oil we were using, this, this sudden kind of shock, you would have seen the Dow Jones would have been plunging. People would have been, there would have been panicking about a recession. There would have been, people would have been rushing to the gas station to fill up, you know, there would have been a panic. And this, when this event were now a week into it, then people have barely even noticed. The United States has basically shrugged and continued to move on. And that truly is because of the, we have more than doubled our oil production in the last 10 years domestically. And that has changed the way we approach uh, the international oil markets. It has provided the diversity of supply in the oil markets. And it's not just the United States. There's been new production areas in places like Brazil. There's new discoveries in Africa and South America. So it is it, the global reliance on the Middle East for oil has declined. Obviously, there's still that baseline reliance, but there's a lot more diversity of supply, and that primary source of that diversity is the United States. Yeah, and oil supply shocks always tend to reignite discussions about the uh, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Uh, can you talk about what that is um, for our listeners, and then uh, just how much oil does it hold, and what are sort of the arguments for and against the yes, um SPR. Right. So the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is, it's essentially the, a bunch of spent um, salt caverns and some spent oil wells uh, along the Gulf Coast in Texas and Louisiana that where oil has been bought up by the federal government and then injected into the ground to sit there as a reserve in case of, uh, you know, a major war in the Middle East or cut off of supplies or the, another Arab oil embargo like in the 70s, with the idea being that we could then, even if we had no oil coming in, we could use this reserve to keep the economy pumping, you know, over the course of uh, however long it la however long the conflict lasts. Um, the SPR right now has a little over 600 million barrels in it, and I believe the production, the, the claimed production capacity of this, which is the ability to pull it out of the ground and actually put it to use, is about 4 million barrels per day, supposedly. The thing is, is the, the SBR is old and it's questionable whether it's been maintained. Uh, the quality of the oil, you know, has, may have gotten a little degraded sitting down in the ground all this time. So it's not clear that that 4 million barrels per day could actually be done. But that, that's, that's the idea behind the SPR. Now, of course, that 4 million, even that headline, 4 million barrels per day, that wouldn't have been enough to cover the, the amount that's gone offline in Saudi Arabia from this attack. In terms of arguments for it against the Strategic uh, Petroleum Reserve, um, it's something that I, I've seen a few articles written about where, uh, from my understanding, for the past several years, there haven't been, we haven't been adding to the supply there. It's Occasionally there has been cases where there has been, uh, we've, withdraw we've withdrawn oil from there. Um, is it likely that we slowly see oil withdrawn from the SBR and that be a institution that sort of goes away over time? Or what are your thoughts on uh, the future of, of, of it? Right. Well, and th that is the problem is that the SPR over the last few decades has sort of been used as a bit of a piggy bank. Like if, if Congress needs someplace to, to cover a little spending that they want to do, they sell some oil out of the SPR, which, I mean, that's silly to do. But the real problem is, is that then we then later spend money to buy up some more oil to put back in the ground. So if we sell when the prices are low and then we're spending more money when the prices are higher to refill it, it you know, it doesn't make sense sure. as, you know, as a practice, conservation of taxpayer money. Um, but there is the underlying question of what is the purpose of the SPR? Because it costs money to maintain. 
um, and it costs money, you know, just moving the oil around, and the, you know, there's, there's a baseline cost there. Um, so that, that is the open question. You, I think that the events, the, if we don't need the SPR for an event like this, where 5% of global oil production suddenly goes offline, it, it really raises the question of why we need an SPR at all. Now, for me, I, I don't see any reason to precipitously sell it all off just for the sake of getting rid of it. But it's, I do think it's the sort of thing that it, we shouldn't be adding to it anymore. And it, maybe keep it around, you know, long term as a just, you know, as a hedge against something, some catastrophic, you know, giant World War Three or something. But the, it, yeah, it really raises the question of what the point of it is. Uh, you mentioned Saudi Arabia's energy minister um, said that they plan to have the facilities back online by the end of September, and that's probably a lot sooner than a lot of people thought it was going to be uh, when this attack like first took place. Um, other than uh, some higher prices in the short run here, um, does it seem like that's pretty much going to be the extent of how this impacts things? Or? Well, if they really do get things back online that quickly, yes, you'll still, you'll, you'll, there'll be a slight, you know, in the terms of the U.S., there may be 10, 20 cents a gallon for, for a month or so, but it'll, it'll be a very short-term price disruption. Now, it, a lot of people are a bit skeptical about them being able to get things back online that quickly. I mean, on a Saturday evening or Sunday morning, they claimed that they could get, you know, 40% back online by Monday. Like, they've been making a lot of claims about how quickly they can do this, and that's a little uncertain whether how how accurate all that is just because the facilities that were hit were specially constructed for this location They're, these aren't off the shelf parts that you can just go buy and you know plug back in these were specially you know constructed um, facilities that were extremely large and extremely expensive and are going to have to be essentially hand handmade to go to be repaired and you know with enough money which if Saudi Arabia is really willing to put up enough money it probably can get done pretty quickly, but you know, end of the month, that's that's a serious commitment for full recovery of capacity. I could see them getting you know more than halfway there by the end of the month, but full seems again, if they're willing to put in the money and the effort, I probably can do it. But sure, it might be a case of them trying to manage expectations right. a bit more than well. Know. And that's the thing, and this is part of why global oil prices. A lot of it is an expectations game. If they if they just keep talking it down, talking it down, it'll keep the price not. The, the, from getting out of control and you know it may take them a few weeks longer than they said but if the prices never go up so there's never any impact and the timing of this is kind of interesting because uh saudi aramco the state-owned oil group uh in saudi arabia there and the world's largest oil firm is launching its ipo um or is planning to launch its IPO pretty soon. Uh, can you just talk about the significance of Saudi Aramco's IPO and any? Uh, you think this will have any impact on that? Well, there the Saudi Aramco IPO has been kind of a. It's been a bit of a saga. It's been they've been talking about this for about a year and a half now. They keep saying, "Oh, we're going to launch. We're going to launch," and then they back off because, you mainly because the investor response has not been uh, as. As robust as they would have liked. The the the, the reason they the Saudi government is even proposing this is that they want some cash to help spend on one with their warrants, the war in Yemen they're fighting, also you know building up a military buildup against Iran, and to pacify the population. They sort of they pacify their population with government jobs and kind of the welfare state, and 
because oil prices have been relatively low for several years now, the Saudi budget's been strained a little bit. So they've been looking for ways to draw money out of a place like Saudi Aramco. The problem is, is that every time they've gotten close to an IPO is one, uh, it's not clear that they could raise as much money as they want to. And two is where do you list it? There, the, there's a lot of transparency requirements in most major stock exchanges. And since Saudi Aramco is a government-owned company, of, and, it's, and it's of a government that's wholly owned by a single family, it's their slush fund. So there's some question about whether the transparency requirements and the, the uh, bookkeeping requirements of some of these stock exchanges could be met. So they keep changing where they're going to, first, oh, we're going to do it in New York, but they couldn't do it. Then they talked about Tokyo. Then they talked about doing it in Saudi Arabia, but the Saudi stock exchange is so small that Saudi Ramco would be something like 40% of the the stock exchange or something. So uh, they've been, they've been playing this game about the IPO and they ended up so far, instead of there, there are several aborted IPOs. They actually did a giant bond offering, which helped them raise a bunch of money. Um, So it's not clear what, where in that process of the IPO is, but this attack certainly uh, that's going to add even more jitters to the people that people who might might be willing to buy stock in the Saudi Ramco because if it's suddenly if it's that risk of ending up in the middle of a conventional war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, most people don't want to be putting their money into that company, you know, at that time. And it appears the uh, the Trump administration's response to this is going to be adding sanctions to Iran, as you alluded to, um, sort of in our opening here. Um, we don't necessarily need to debate, you know, whether or not that's a good idea or not, but um, certainly it means that there's heightening tensions in the Middle East. Um, and um, so what are the implications for this sort of escalating conflict in the Middle East for um, American energy industry um, and American energy consumers? Right. So for for the United States, this and this is another way that, as we were talking about earlier, about U.S. domestic production growing so much, it is remarkable how limited our need to be involved in this conflict is. And that's because we are producing so much more on our own that it the, the oil production in the Middle East still matters for us for price purposes. Like that affects, oil prices are set internationally. They're not, so, you know, gas prices at the pump go up or down based on the international oil price. So we don't want the oil price to be out of control. But we're not at risk of not having access to oil should should Saudi Arabia and Iran go, go to a full-scale conventional war. That would, you know, make gas more expensive, but we're not at risk of, you know, shortages or gas lines or anything like that. So that really changes the way we are able to approach this. And and that's why I think that the Trump administration is able to just say, you know, we might do more sanctions rather than talking about sending a U.S. Uh, carrier group into the Persian Gulf, you know, to, to launch military strikes against Iran. That's not that's not really even being contemplated. But that's because of the domestic energy development that we have now. It 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 allows us to be more of an observer to this kind of conflict. Um, from the Saudi Arabian standpoint, this is a is a serious situation for them, because if if this is ultimately traced to a direct attack from Iran on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities, that I mean that's an that's an act of war. This is no longer a proxy war in Yemen. This is this is the two regional superpowers actually shooting at each other. So it 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 would be hard for Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has to respond in some way, to, in in my mind, because their their oil facilities they they if 
Iran is going to be launching missiles at their oil facilities. They don't really have the capability of stopping those missiles. They, they, they just don't have the, their facilities aren't hardened that way. They're hardened against, you know, truck bombs from terrorists, not from conventional weapons from Iran. So the, the, the Saudi response, they really are the ones that are in a big dilemma because they, they need some sort of robust response. And it's hard to see what that response is uh, short of, short of conventional forces. This, United States, on the other hand, like I say, we have the the luxury of, you know, we're we're probably going to back Saudi Arabia. We're going to want to isolate Iran, probably do stronger sanctions. But uh, we have the luxury of being a bit more of a observer and a follower here, rather than having to be the ones on the front line. In terms of domestic policy um, implications of this, though, there are probably things that we could do to expand our production, right? Right. Well, and this actually, this is a perfect example of why the increasing domestic production is so important. It's why things like Anwar, uh, there's no reason that Anwar shouldn't have been producing oil for decades now. But it's only now starting the leasing process for these known reserves that are there. We have, we have uh, oil and particularly gas that is, that is sitting for want of a market in the United States because we don't have pipelines to ship it to customers. The pipelines are either in the process of being built or they're being stopped from construction by resistance from, you know, radical state, radical environmentalists or state governments that are opposed to energy production. And this this sort of event only emphasizes how important it is for the United States to produce more locally and to have a more developed interconnected market with our pipelines, with our production facilities, being able to being able to ship oil and gas between U.S. ports, for goodness sake. The, this, this sort of event is why all those things are so important, all these things that we talk about day in, day out, about this, we need to do this because it's important for our security. This really shows why all those things, this is an example of, why, of how that makes us more secure. Like, that's why we can, again, the, this has been a blip on the radar for uh, the American economy and American markets, but it's because of domestic production that that is the case. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think our listeners should know about this? Well, I'll, you know, I'll say there's been uh, a number of people uh, in the last couple of days have sort of made the point that, oh, this is this exam this attack is an example of why the United States can never be energy independent because, oh, we're, you know, oil prices are second, are international. Our gas prices are based on those oil prices. So we're always going to be affected by the international markets. Well, that's that's true, but it's being kind of kind of pedantic or playing with semantics about the term independence. True, the United States, we're not going to shut off our borders and go to autarky and only use oil that we produce here. That's not, but that's not really what people meant. The word independence obviously gives that impression, but that's not what really we're, we mean when we talk about energy independence. More, what we're really talking about is energy security, and that's what I've been talking about earlier about how. We lose 5% of the world's oil supply, but the New York Stock Exchange barely notices. Gas prices, you know, go up a little bit, but barely move. But it's because we are producing so much at home that we are we are teetering on the edge of being a net exporter of energy. When you talk about gas, uh, gas, oil, uh, petroleum liquids, all, you know, the total energy, we still employ a little bit of oil. But, but because we are net energy neutral, that actually protects us in the security sense that these sorts of disruptions that happen internationally, yes, we are never going to be completely independent of them.
but we are substantially protected from the negative impacts from it. And most importantly, when you talk about oil prices rising, that is no longer a complete negative for the American economy. In the past, when the oil prices goes up, the American economy goes down. It's just, you know, almost one for one. But now we're producing so much domestic energy that when oil prices rise, the American economy captures some of the some of the value of those rising prices. It's all not entirely negative. You get there'll be more jobs and investment in Texas or North Dakota or Pennsylvania or Louisiana or Alaska. So so it's not it, it allows us to ride out some of those those price swings that are always going to happen, but it allows us to ride them out and it becomes net less of a, you know, a massive crushing burden on the economy. It you know, it becomes more of a you know, it's a negative factor, but it's not dispositive. Sure, and the rising prices uh, with other deregulatory measures that the administration has taken, uh, it seems like it'd be an opportunity for innovation within the oil industry as well. Sure, yeah. Well, and increased production in the oil industry. And, you know, yeah, exactly. It, it, it gives us, again, it made, uh, it's not independence. Independence is always has always been the wrong word. It's more of a slogan. But we are energy secure. I think there, I think this event proves that the energy development over the last five to ten years has made us energy secure. Great, my guest today has been Kenny Stein of IER. Kenny, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>